0: I always like to hire people that have gone through a lot of adversity because that allows them to get through hard times easier because their base expectation is slow. And so they're not turned off by a customer saying no or a customer saying this is not exactly right for what I need or whatever the feedback might be.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Kasser, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I like to get these things started by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them, and then please fill in the blanks on anything that I may have missed. Fair? Absolutely. Okay. You got a degree from Kettering University as an engineer, a mechanical engineer. On your LinkedIn, it says this was the uh, GM Institute of Technology, which may have been facetious, but maybe also wasn't, because you then went to work at GM for five years in 99, and you worked on cars. And then from there, you went to Bosch as an engineer and PM. You worked on safety systems, so sensors, bags, et cetera, et cetera. And then at some point into that stint there, you left for Harvard. And you went to get your MBA from Harvard. Then you went on to be the co-founder of Camisa. You spent three years doing that, in your words, early in the consumer crowdfunding space, too early. The company sadly died a silent and unremarkable death, my first foray into software then you went to Sears. You were the director of finance. You owned the financials for a billion plus dollar business unit. Learned a bunch about retail, which then informed your second startup, Talkbin. And within one year of Talkbin, just shy of a year, so you were the founder and CEO. It was sold to Google and it was specifically sold and integrated into the Google Maps component of Google. And as a part of that you spent, and I've heard you talk about this before, you surprisingly spent three years at Google. Your plan was to probably go pick up and do another one again. And I think, not to put words in your mouth, but it turned out to be a pretty good ride. And there was a pretty good set of people that you had the opportunity to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And so you were a PM there at Google. You met a few key people while you were there. And then you went to Y Combinator. And you were a partner and the COO there at Y Combinator for four years and for those that don't know why Combinator, I'll let you talk about that for a little bit. And now, as of 2017-ish, yep. you are the CEO of Applied Intuition. So I want to talk about Applied Intuition. I want to talk about what you're doing there. Before we do any of that, let's go into this background.
0: Can I tell you the things that were incorrect? I took yeah, yeah, some, yes, some yes, quick yes. notes. This is
1: this is your LinkedIn, so it's
0: whatever. <laughs> so GMI actually was the school's name, the General Motors Institute changed this name in 1998. Our class was the first class that was Kettering University, full class of Kettering University. Uh, Sloan and Kettering were the, basically the two people who ran General Motors. Sloan was the business guy, Kettering was the, it's Larry and Sergey of General Motors 100 years ago. And so GMI is very much deeply in the auto business and, and that's how I was in the auto business. And then at Sears, I was actually recruited by the hedge fund that owned Sears and I was at Harvard. It's a place called ESL Investments. They own a bunch of things, Sears, Kmart, AutoZone, AutoNation, Mm -hmm. a bunch of things. They're a turnaround shop, though they're a hedge fund. they, They really are like a PE turnaround shop. But yeah, learned a ton. And yeah, I think the most interesting thing about my startup journey specifically is I worked on three startups and one was a consumer company, one was a B2B company, and now I'm an enterprise company. So I've seen sales motions and go to market strategies from the three major kind of predominant ways. Like how do you acquire consumers? How do you acquire small, medium businesses and how do you acquire very large enterprise accounts? And so, I can, you know, we can talk about and dive into the kind of compare and contrast and what you can learn from those three different approaches to the market.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that struck me listening to you describe your background in other places was that you left... Bosch to get your MBA. And again, tell me if I'm butchering this, but someone gave you advice yeah. that you're going to top out as an engineer. I thought this was really interesting that you're going to top out as an engineer. Yeah, And basically you were going to reach your maximum ability, threshold, financial gains, everything. Yeah. And so your avenue to reinvent yourself or to maybe diversify you as a person and as a leader and as a worker was to go to HBS. Is yeah. that right? Yeah,
0: absolutely right. It was a manager of mine at uh, at General Motors who said, and I think this is less true in Silicon Valley, but in like traditional industry, oil and gas and steel and automotive and some of these other places, being just an engineer is not enough. And you want to have that non-technical kind of uh, experience. And I mean, I think for me, something I recommend folks early in their career is to think about how do you pick up those diversity of skills? Because especially if you want to start a company, you need both sides of the brain you need to be able to have an understanding of how software and, and mostly in silicon valley's example but let's say other technical hardware or whatever whatever domain you're in you need to know how those things work at a the lowest level and then simultaneously you need to understand what a balance sheet is and what a vc does and what their incentives are and how do stock options work and all of that non-technical stuff i think when you're in silicon valley especially as an early engineer you just get exposed to those things but if you're living in Houston and you work in oil and gas and you're at Chevron, you're just not going to get exposed to the business side. And that, that's kind of my uh, equivalent in Detroit and automotive is I just didn't get access to the business side of business. And that's what HBS really allowed me to do. A lot of people poo-poo uh, MBAs or question if they're valuable. And I'm directly in the camp of I found HBS to be incredibly valuable, both in terms of the hard skills you learn about just what is business and how does the stock market work and what a hedge fund is and why it's different from a PE fund and what do VCs do? Maybe other people know that. I didn't know those things. And then all the way to like the HBS network. I'm fortunate enough to be part of the Google network and the YC network and mm-hmm. the Kettering GMI network and, and the HBS network. The HBS network is, is really phenomenal. And I think it has something to do with the fact that folks from HBS are working in lots of different industries. So you can learn by actually evaluating other industries. I think sometimes in order to learn something, if you're just looking at your own industry, you end up almost copying the processes and paths that others within your own industry are following. And therefore, that's not an advantage within the competitive landscape. It's like the same reason why you should read history. It's great. If you read history, you become a better startup founder because you start seeing patterns that exist in how countries are organized or how other corporations have been organized. And then you can apply it to your own set of problems. But for me, that mixture, technical, non-technical, was, was absolutely massive.
1: And you're right, it is very different than the advice that someone in Silicon Valley would give to an engineer in Silicon Valley. If you, or maybe when you were giving that advice at Y Combinator as an example, would you have ever said, hey, you're a great engineer, you're gonna top out, you should go to Harvard or you should go to Stanford or you should go get your MBA. Would you repeat that advice back to someone who's not in Flint, Michigan?
0: I mean, I have. My co-founder for my last company who runs his own venture fund now, Michael Ma. Yale econ self-taught programmer and we sold the company to Google together and uh, he ended up at HBS and he's a Yale alum so he's not exactly like coming from Flint it's not for everybody absolutely there's very very few things in life that are generally applicable I think if you want to be a founder you can get that non-technical by the way experience by doing YC I don't think you need to go to HBS what I'm saying is you should pick up those skills Whether through experience or education, you need to diversify your tool set if you're an engineer. Now, if you're going down the business side, you have to figure out how to get exposure to technical products. If you're gonna sell in the Bay Area, most likely you're gonna sell technical product, especially the area that I'm in, which is enterprise infrastructure stuff. The the products are incredibly technical. And so even our sales team, they have to learn the vernacular and they have to build a skill set of How do you learn something technical without actually being an engineer? I think it's very possible. A lot of people do it very, very successfully. But there's a value in diverse skills. And whether you go to HBS to get it or YC or whatever, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I've heard you say, so Camisa failed. Yes. Talkbin worked. Okay, (laughs) let's just keep it binary. And I've heard you say that I learned a lot more from Camisa than I did from Talkbin. Absolutely, yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, my first company,
0: you know, we just didn't know there's so many of these cliches that you hear about how to assess the market, how to approach the market, how to talk to the market. You hear these things, you'll hear them on podcasts, but they don't really absorb until you live it and you make those mistakes. And so I think if you are interested in doing startups as a person, you have to get that direct experience. It's just like, you know, the adage of playing a piano, you can't just read about how to play a piano, you have to play a piano and you'll actually learn and you'll get better with actual practice rather than reading about it. And there's a similar thing about doing as a founder. So yeah, I learned almost in every dimension, how do software companies work? How do you get customers? How often should you abandon your idea? How should you change? How do you price things? You name it, we touched it and we learned it. And I mean, probably the biggest lesson I learned was there is a value to Silicon Valley. That company was in Chicago And there was always a question, and I think it's very in vogue today, are we at peak Silicon Valley? And can you do startups other places? I think today, more than ever, I think the answer is yes, you can do startups other places. But I still think, you know, Kleiner Perkins is based in Silicon Valley. It's not based in Chicago. It's not based in Detroit. It's not based in New York, even though it might have partners and team members there or people covering those areas. It's still headquartered here. So as a founder there's a lot of advantages to being in Silicon Valley. And I think that that was a huge lesson. It's like, I think if we had done Camisa in Silicon Valley, there's a chance it would have been successful. And that's a pretty significant reflection, right? It's like we made mistakes, but probably the biggest mistake was location. There's a great Paul Graham actually essay on this. It was written in October of 2006, one of his best essays, and it was 18 mistakes that kill startups. And the first mistake is solo founder. The second mistake is bad location. There, there's a bunch. I won't go through them, but you can, you can read them yourself. But it's a fantastic essay because it basically says, if you just avoid doing all these incorrect things, you'll have a successful company. And like we took that to heart. We had almost like divine intervention where we, we read that and we said, okay, for our second company, we're going to avoid all of these obvious pitfalls. And near the top of the list was location, but there, there were many others.
1: And that second company was a Y Combinator yeah. company, correct? Yeah. So maybe the show is listened to in over 55 countries. And so for those that aren't in Flint, Michigan or the Bay Area, <laughs> but it might be in Pakistan or somewhere else, what does Y Combinator do? Maybe we could start there. Yeah,
0: YC is fundamentally, it's an accelerator or incubator. Everyone has different terms for it. But uh, in practical terms, it provides a small amount of financing to a large amount of companies. I think today, currently, YC is funding hundreds of companies per batch, They do two batches per year. At my time, when we went through YC, now uh, 10 years ago, our batch I think was like 30 some companies. And it's kind of grown in scale over time. But basically they tend to provide early capital for a fixed rate of the company. And yeah, it's like the accelerator of accelerators. And I think YC's success speaks for itself. It's probably the number one accelerator in the world and continues to be since it was founded in 2005 uh, by Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston and Trevor Blackwell and Robert Morris, the four founders. So still continues basically doing roughly the same thing, providing a small amount of capital to a large amount of companies.
1: Yep. That makes sense. And I think I want to talk about Talkbin for like a minute or two, because I do think it's instructive towards where we are today. What happened? You went to Sears and then you said, okay, I'm ready to jump back on the horse again and do this thing again. Yeah. What happened? How did the idea come to you?
0: Yeah. More specifically, I would say went to Sears Holdings, the holding company and saved money. (laughs) You know, I didn't have the means at the time. I didn't have wealthy parents or like a trust or anything like that. And so it was just like, I need to save 30 grand if I recall correctly at that time. And I was going to use that money to get the next company going. And the view was, I have one year. And in that year, we got to come up with the team first, the market second, the idea third, and then raise money. And if we can't do that in the year, then just go back to working at, you know, I had offers from Apple and Google and these types of uh, big companies that, that were big companies even back 10 years ago. And so we did that. My co-founder, Michael and Sonny, my two co-founders and us, we came up with the idea, which was we looked at roughly the retail space because we had worked in retail and I said, OK, where are there? deficiencies and the initial idea was customer service was missing mobile phones were becoming i mean this is like ancient history at this point but mobile phones were coming to a mainstream smartphone specifically and then apps within smartphones and texting and asynchronous communication so this is 2010 so the iphone had come out a couple years ago but now it's finally penetrating it's not a coincidence around that time whatsapp is founded you know 12 months either way whatsapp uber Instagram, all of these like giants within the Mm. mobile industry are founded. And probably one of the big realizations we had at the time, and I use it in the third one is you want to pick a market that's fundamentally growing. And the market that was fundamentally growing was mobile. And our idea was really to be able to send a message from a consumer to a business using text message. And so our sales motion then is to get a bunch of small and medium businesses on the platform. And so we sold, I think it was my first true sales experience in my life where you just go out knocking doors and getting hundreds and hundreds of businesses to ultimately use the platform and then doing product iterations the way we came to google was some of the folks at google used our products out in the wild and they thought hey, this could be interesting part of Google Maps. We didn't know that at the time. We, mm. we got called in to do a partnership and they asked us, "Okay, oh, how would you do this partnership? We said, oh, we would, just like on, we would do on Facebook fan pages and on Yelp, there'd be a message button and you can message the business just through text, which was novel at the point. Mm. And now it exists on in, in Google Maps because of us. And WhatsApp for Business is another version of the same phenomenon, which is doing business through text. And that vision was compelling, or that idea was compelling. Attraction was was pretty strong at the time. We're a young company, and long story short, Marissa Mayer, who at the time was the lead of Local, she hadn't gone to Yahoo at the time, acquired the company with another woman, who Jen Fitzpatrick, and then the two kind of deputies they had, Ben Ling and, and Daniel Graff. And yeah, we ended up at Google. It was, and then we executed that mission over time. And what was different about being inside of Google and being outside of Google, inside of Google, the way you monetize ads. And so it went to the same small and medium businesses And we said, you can use these tools for free. By the way, you can also buy ads on Google. And that's what google.com slash business is today. If you go to, even today in 2020, if you go to google.com slash business, it says, get your listing up for free on Google. And then when you do that, there's a breadcrumb all the way to ultimately as a smaller medium business to get you to buy ads.
1: Was selling what you thought it would be? So let me ask a different way. You have already done a pretty diverse set of things. And to your point, that was the first time where, you had feet on the street, you going door to door selling. Was it what you expected? And did it create a moment of empathy where you are now where it's like, wow, this is pretty hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't (laughs) recall who told me this. It might've been Mamoon, actually from KP, but it was something along the lines of the reason sales is actually worse than engineering is because you have quota to hit. You don't get a choice. You know, engineers in some degree get coddled in Silicon Valley. It's like, oh, make sure you're fed with snacks and you have all of these things. And like the only thing the salesperson gets is you didn't hit your quarterly quota and you're not going to get paid. So there is an empathy there because I think in Silicon Valley, it's such an engineering centric culture that sometimes the excellence and what's required to be a good salesperson, whether you're doing $5,000 deals to you're doing $5 million deals, there is a skill. It's not random. If it was random, the returns would be distributed evenly. And they're not. They're good salespeople that get a line share of the return and are in turn rewarded for that. So that was huge for me to just see like, oh, there is a difference. And I think one of my own personal skills through a diversity of my experiences, I've seen a little bit of sales. I've seen a little bit of design. I've seen a little bit of product. I've seen a little bit of engineering. And that allows us at Apply in our current company to actually have a more balanced company because we can understand that there isn't, you know, these second class citizens where you have mm-hmm. the engineers number one and then everybody else is number two, or sales is number one and engineers are number two and you have you have to have a balanced organization. But yeah, absolutely was eye-opening. And it, it just the vernacular also of sales. How do you do quotas and how do you set targets and what's OTE all those things. It's the first time I was kind of exposed. I really, you know, in our current company, I really expanded on that. Our VP of sales came from Oracle and HortonWorks and career salesperson on, on large accounts. And so learned a lot from our own sales team now here at Applied. So I don't want to steal their thunder, but both those experience in startups, I, I learned a lot. I also at YC, actually, I learned a bunch about sales insofar as I interacted with companies on a huge spectrum, right? So YC is funding consumer companies, enterprise companies, B2B companies. I mean, YC is funded to give, you know, your audience a sense of companies like Reddit and Twitch and Dropbox and Airbnb and GitLab and Checker. And I mean, there's this DoorDash, there's a long list of companies and their sales motions in each of those companies are very, very different. And so when you're working with founders and they're really early in their development of the company, I got an insight into like, how do you frame these early sales organizations? Not when You got 25 reps carrying quota across the North America, but really when you're just one person selling, whether it's the founders or they're hiring their first rep, how do you incentivize and how do you explore the market before that sales motion is clean and efficient? And there is that embryonic period, you can almost say it, before the sales motion is actually matured. And that was hugely eye-opening to me as well. Uh, If you as a listener, you know, have an opportunity to see lots of companies, I would definitely take it because you start seeing patterns then and how go-to-market as a broad category is important, but how does it manifest itself in a consumer company versus a company that's selling, you know, really expensive software, for instance?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been able to do at Kleiner, and I noticed that there's some businesses that do 70% of their revenue through a channel that takes no margin off the top. I didn't even know that was a thing before this. You know, there's there's bottoms up where it's just this insanely beautiful product-led motion. I had Atlassian CRO on the show, and he talks about the way that their go-to-market has evolved. And you start to learn what works, what doesn't, and start to build those patterns. And it's amazing. Touching on something that you said earlier. So this notion of, hey, I've seen a lot of things, engineering, marketing, sales, go-to-market. A lot of what I see is a culture of engineering that starts from the top. And so if you're the CEO, typically we're investing, as I'm sure Y Combinator was, in more technically-oriented CEOs. And so what you end up seeing is this manifestation of culture over time that actually is a very, very engineering-oriented culture. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way that that framework and mindset works is foundationally very different than what it takes to be successful in selling. And so often when you're looking for recruiting and hiring and then actually bringing on your first sets of go-to-market people, they feel a little bit limited or constrained within the culture that they've just been implanted into. And so a lot of time there's some really heavy lifting to move this culture, move this boulder of engineering out and create a go-to-market culture or a sales culture where we're shifting the mindset from serving a product to serving a customer and solving their challenges with our product. Did you see that at Y Combinator? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have friends who are you know, non-technical and
0: who are interested in, in going into sales, maybe early in their career. I do mentor folks often. And one of the recommendations I say, if they're getting into sales, like either go to a company that's a product that's so good that you can be a terrible salesperson and you're just going to hit quota again and again, like, you know, working for a Google in 2005, like you couldn't help but sell search ads at that time. The internet's just growing. You're going to hit the quota on January 1st. And then you spend the rest of the year trying to see if you can vastly exceeded or, you go to a company where the leadership at least understands sales thinks about sales and sales is a part of it and the way we've designed applied is actually you know 85% of our company's engineers so we're we're a heavily an engineering company or the non-engineers in a company are actually very few but what i don't want to imply is the engineers the center of the company what's the center of the company are customers and i think that's much more healthy because that focuses products, designer, engineering, sales, marketing, everybody to really focus on a customer and be customer oriented. And I think that actually creates a more healthy culture. But yeah, absolutely saw that at YC. You'll see engineers who, I'll give you an example. It's like, imagine if we went to New York and we met, you know, somebody who works in public equities and we said, hey, uh, you're going to start a company. What type of engineers do you think that you need? And they'll just say like, oh, I just need some coders. That's as deep as the understanding is. And it's like, if you actually in software development or engineering, there's a huge diversity. There's people who do things like cryptocurrencies, there's people who do front-end, there's people who do back-end, autonomy engineers, roboticists. You have QA, you have a huge diversity of what is a software engineer. You have SREs who are, you know, working at reliability. And of course, being a software engineer at Google and being a software engineer at a small company are vastly different jobs. But for somebody in New York who's working in public equities, they just see engineer as this bucket And so the same thing actually happens on the opposite too. If you ask an engineer, what do non-technical people do? They're just like, oh, they're business people. And they struggle to separate sales and marketing and they struggle to separate strategy and finance and like all of these subdomains. If you're in the business side of the world, you very clearly understand the difference between an accountant and a finance person. But, you know, to an engineer, that's like, oh, are those really different? I thought they were kind of very similar. And so what you have and what I think what I witnessed both at YC and just broadly in the Valley is if the founders don't have that diversity in their brain, they tend to simplify the area that they don't know. And that's actually bad if you're in the area they don't know, because then it's a very opaque system. And they're just like, well, why don't you just have the go to market work? And they literally cannot separate inside sales rep from an actual rep from a marketing person and how do they, you know, dance together in order to build a funnel, get the lead, close it and move on to the next thing. And that level of sophistication is just missing. So I think, you know, it depends on where you as a listener are. If you're looking at joining a three-person company, you're looking at joining a 300-person company or 3,000-person company, you know, those will, will have very different levels of sophistication. The younger you are, in the company's life cycle, the more likely as the go-to-market person, you have to really be aware of what the founders get and what they don't get. And mm. if they don't get go-to-market, you have to then take that responsibility onto yourself. If they get go-to-market, that might allow you and empower you to do more, but you know, it's also loses some of that influence because they're gonna have their own opinions on go-to-market. So you know, it's all trade-offs.
1: What percentage of founders that YC invested in were what you would consider, and I put in air quotes, technical? I'll say not business oriented, like not the business people, most of them, yeah, right? Most of them.
0: I don't know the hard numbers and I've left YC four years ago. So my, even my own information is a little dated, but the point is most people are engineers. I think YCs like Paul Graham's and Jessica's specific assertion that I've heard them say is they believe that you could take engineers and teach them business easier yep. than you can take business people and teach them engineering. And I think that's probably true, but I think it's more just the case of you're in Silicon Valley. You're just going to meet a lot more engineers.
1: Yeah. And I ask that because Kleiner's the same way, right? I'd say almost all, but most of the founders within the KP portfolio are engineering and technically oriented. In fact, that's why I have a job. So I can help coach them on like, what are the things that we can do on the business and go to market side? The reason I asked the question, are there any common, maybe one or two patterns or themes where you've seen these technical founders fail on the go-to-market side. Oh, absolutely. And maybe there's one or two from Paul's 18 things that you're not supposed to do. I don't know, go ahead.
0: Yeah, they're absolutely, I mean, I remember asking a long time ago, asking Paul, it was before I'd gone to YC, I was looking at my second startup and I was just spitballing ideas with him. And I said, oh, are there ever been ideas that have failed? And it was just because of the founder, but the market and everything else was ready for and Paul made some joke. Yeah, He's like, yeah, every single one of them. It's almost always, you know, the founders just don't understand that aspect. And I would say more often than not, the reason companies fail is not because of their ability not to technically execute, though that happens. It's usually they don't really understand the market or the market doesn't fundamentally demand the product. So in that sense, I'm in the school of business. I, my own evolution of the last 15 years of doing startups and being an investor as well is it's evolved from, I used to think it was only about the founders. I used to really be founder centric. And now I'm probably more market centric than anything else, where it's like the market either wants a product or doesn't want the product. Because I saw at YC a lot of very competent founders learn sales, do the marketing stuff, stretch themselves, and still fail. They worked very hard and they were very earnest, took feedback well, but still fail because the market just didn't want the product. John Doerr has this great line in a a PBS documentary from the late 90s. For the listeners, Kleiner's an investor of ours, and I really think uh, highly of John. And John was in his PBS documentary in the late 90s. It was probably the first time I ever saw a VC. I was in Michigan, and this was far from my world. I was was in high school. It was called Nerds 2.0.1, which is like a history of the internet, basically. And he said there's four risks in a young company. There's a technical risk. There's team risk. There's financial risk. And then all of those first three of the four, those first three, money can help solve. You can, get, you can help get money. You can help get a good team. Financial risk helps you get a runway that you can keep building before you get a profitability. Then technical. But the risk that you can't use money for is market risk. And the example he used at that time was this dog eat the dog food. You know, if we're let's say you and I had a dog food company, we couldn't eat the dog food because we're not dogs. And so ultimately you have to put it in front of a dog and the dog either likes it or not. And that's where you really figure out. And that's something that you can't almost try yourself as a maker of that product as an analogous example. And so market risk, I think, is if not the biggest risk. The one that I think about a lot. Now even when I look at helping, mentoring, angel investing in companies that are not applied, I still think a lot about What's the market risk? here? What's the fundamental market risk? What market assumptions you have to? And, you know, that's another way of saying, what is the go to market? What's the sales motion? What's your pricing power? What's the willingness to pay from the market for this product? And it could be just attention, right? If it's a consumer product, what's the willingness to give attention for this thing? It's obviously easier said in this theoretical fashion than it is And John is also, and Mamoon are both HBS MBAs, as I am. And so in the Harvard MBA world, you know, abstractly, that makes a lot of sense where the rubber meets the road is you actually have an idea and then you just really define what's the go-to-market strategy. And it gets a lot more nuanced at that point.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. If you now have refined your thinking towards market matters more than the team, then do you feel like, because a lot of the times, and maybe I'll use you as an example, like I'm pretty sure Talkbin went through four iterations of something else before it was Talkpin, and that something else was four different markets, right? It was four different products serving four different markets, but you had a team, i.e. you and your co-founders who were smart enough, thoughtful enough, self-aware enough to know when something wasn't working. Most importantly, when it was the wrong market and you were trying to deliver a product in a market that was wrong, not big enough, whatever, not ready for it. Do you feel like then if you start prioritizing market over people that maybe you haven't uncovered?
0: Yeah, so there's, there's nuance here. So I would say first is in the order of operations, first is the founding team, second is the market, third is the idea. So you can change ideas within a market, but changing the market itself becomes difficult. What you should as a founding team be is working on a market that you are uniquely suited to attack my co-founder Peter and I both grew up in Michigan, both from the auto business. Peter's a third generation automotive engineer. His father worked for many years in the business. His grandfather spent 30 years at General Motors. We understand the automotive market. Now, what we do within that market, we're doing simulation software. What we do in the market is actually, you know, that can move and we can move to adjoining industries if the original idea didn't work. So that's the nuance. I don't say market over team. I say market over founders as a seed investment. So it's very, very particular. So I think there's a certain point, and Amazon is a great example, that the company has now ingrained in itself. Amazon doesn't make money because it's a really great bookseller. That's ancient history at this point. Why it's been successful, it's, it's an organization that has the ability to read the market and understand what it should build and how it should price and how it should take it to market. And then it uses its strengths in that market whatever that market might be, you know, so AWS or adjoining industries. And so for Applied, when I work with and talk to our sales and marketing wings of the company, I often talk about this, but I even talk about it, frankly, with the engineering team or the product folks and design folks is you always want to be reading the market. What are our customers saying? This is what I mean about being customer centric. What are the customers saying? And then building for them. YC has this great line, this great motto says, make something people want. And I think it really kind of hits the nail on the head. And it's something that we've tried to live at Applied, which is you know only make things that the market wants. It's harder to do than say. So here's a more fundamental question. Why doesn't every company do this? Why doesn't every company just listen to the people who are paying them? And there's a number of reasons. Number one, it might be the leadership's ego or the way that they've managed the business. And they think more important is the software or more important is the technology or more important is the branding or the marketing or the launch party or whatever it is. And they don't think it's like when the product is in the hand of the user, when they press a button, are they satisfied? It could be many other reasons. It could be that they don't have the capacity to listen to the feedback that the market is giving them. So let's say me and you start a company, which is like a podcasting app company. We build our first, you know, you can record a podcast on your mobile phone And then we push it out there and we focus all on the website and on the branding and design and raising money. And we forget that actually people are downloading the app and they're either using it or not. And Mm -hmm. so the whole company should be focused on that. That's the market, the download and the usage of the market. And I think the strength of the company is do you interpret that feedback when they download it and they never use the app? That's feedback. Are you listening to that feedback? And then when you're, if you're listening to it and then are you taking the correct actions afterwards? And maybe the action is this idea sucks. People don't need an app that they can record a podcast on their phone. They need an app that does podcast discovery or something. That's still in the same market, but, and that's what I mean being really customer oriented.
1: That's really insightful. Let's talk about applied intuition. My favorite subject. (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. You have just raised your Series C, 176 million to date of funding. Kleiner Perkins, Andreessen Horowitz, General Catalyst, the Floodgate founder, Mike Maples, Lux Capital, John Doer, Naval, Eli Gil, Ron Conway, Aaron Torberg. I guess my point yeah. is it's basically... Good, good, good people. Yeah. Yeah, it's an incredible roster <laughs> of investors who clearly see something here. It is valued at $1.25 if I am not mistaken, maybe you could spend 30 seconds talking about what Applied Intuition actually does.
0: Yeah. First thing I want to say this every time people read off finance and stuff like that, I said it inside of our own company after, you know, obviously the company knew before we went live with the announcement, but I'll say it here, which is like, don't buy the hype. Funding is uh, highly over-indexed as a source of success, and I think the only way you really understand if a company's successful or not is you could look at that P&L and you look at that balance and you see how money flows through the company. And so, you know, even in a podcast like this, I'm hesitant not to say, you know, don't buy the hype and don't look at those numbers because... It's easy to raise money. It's hard to build a business. And I think that's what our cultural values in the company are databases. But what we do is we build simulation software and infrastructure tools. So, software tools that engineers use to build self driving products. So, that could be a robo taxi, that could be a self driving truck, that could be a agriculture product. There's a long list of where autonomy goes into. But I think as a listener, if you don't know anything about the self-driving world, you might be able to understand that, you know, on websites, you have all these tools like Squarespace and Google Analytics and on mobile, you have Mixpanel and you have all these app building tools. Those tools really don't exist in autonomy. And we're building that suite of tools, almost like an Adobe in the prosumer world and the Adobe of the self-driving car software engineers use. And that manifests itself in a more technical term as, as simulators and then some adjoining infrastructure products. But yeah, that's what we do. We build a software and we sell it to companies that are building self-driving systems.
1: If we were in a baseball game and there was nine innings, what inning are we in in the self-driving autonomous car journey? I've heard a lot of different opinions.
0: The differing opinions are because it's a broad term. And so let's just, if we go to a level lower, uh, that'll help us understand where it is. So within the Robotaxi world, just like passenger cars, there's really two categories. You can say it roughly the Tesla world of autopilot and roughly the Waymo world of Robotaxi. And then there's all of these other companies that are working in. And then the broadest level difference between a Tesla system is it's a low expense non-reliant on maps system, HD maps. And the Waymo system is very expensive sensors and really uses high definition maps and some other technologies. But that's the robo-taxi world. Then there's self-driving trucks, which is different. Generally doing the same thing, but different. But then you have agriculture and mining, and then you have sidewalk robots and delivery companies. Any type of vehicle that moves ultimately will be autonomous. And so now when we say, where are we in the autonomy race? It depends on what sector you're talking about. Caterpillar has been dirt moving autonomously for many years. I think it's almost now uh, upon a decade. So it really depends on what you mean by autonomy. Tesla Autopilot exists right now. Tesla sells cars using Autopilot as a big selling point. That's in the market, autonomy is here. Today, Waymo is doing safety driverless shuttles, both in the Phoenix area and the suburbs of Arizona, and then also here in the Bay Area. No safety driver, completely autonomously, door to door. So in that sense, autonomy is here. But where you're getting the confusion is, and again, this is a little insider baseball, but for, for people to understand a little bit, is the Waymo system is quite expensive, both in terms of the sensors and then just how do you get a geography up and ready to go and tested, whereas the Tesla system is relatively cheap. A consumer can afford it. It's not hundreds of thousands of dollars for a system. But the Tesla system doesn't perform like the Waymo system. Right the Waymo system really is full self driving and the Tesla system is generally though more than autopilot more than a highway cruise control but it's more oriented towards that and it's kind of like saying if we were sitting in 2010 and you asked me well where's the mobile revolution? Because in 2010 a small minority of people had smartphones and even the iPhone in 2007 was 4 hour battery life no app store no front facing camera so you couldn't even have something like Instagram which seems so obvious, or WhatsApp, which seems so obvious. It was literally just an iPod with a phone and a web browser. That's the original iPhone. And so if in 2010, you could make that mistake and say, well, we've been talking about mobile for 15 years. It's 95. We've been talking about mobile. And here we're in 2010, and this phone doesn't do anything other than have a cruddy web browser but that's the thing is that's the mistake that I think a lot of people make. They look at the individual data point. They look at November 2020 and they say, this is where autonomy is for robotaxis, taxis. It's very expensive. Or this is where autonomy is for Tesla because it's not going everywhere at all points every day. And therefore, autonomy is doomed. That's not true. What you should be looking at is rate of change. And if you're plotting this, if you look at the again, using the mobile analogy, 2005, flip phones are the dominant. In 2015, smartphones, the iPhone is dominant. Sure right? So I think where are we in autonomy in 10 years? I think you have a lot of autonomy penetration. Every automotive company is building a Tesla-like product and a Waymo-like product.
1: That makes sense. And I guess your phone example is a B2C example, whereas your Tesla example is a B2B example. So maybe that's more relevant to what you're doing today, which is like Tesla built their own autopilot technology, Mm -hmm. correct? And so- the question that we often hear from early stage startups is, I can't sell this thing to these tech companies because they just want to build it versus yeah, buy it. Absolutely. okay. And so I think about your world, that almost seems petty compared to what you have to do, which is sell into these car manufacturers, auto manufacturers. And so I guess is the question, okay, and I'll oversimplify this for Jubin's stupid brain here, but basically Tesla would be a first mover on having built their own in-house systems. And the reason- Or Waymo, yeah. Or Waymo. And the reason that they're probably able to do that is because they have not only the hardware like Detroit might, but the software expertise to actually go ahead and deliver on that promise, right? Similar to a lot of tech companies. Now, do you have to then go and convince these large auto manufacturers that, hey, in fact, it is easier for us, for you to buy our software rather than to go build it on your own? And I will put a bow on this question and let you answer it. GM today. And today is November 10th of 2020 announced that they plan to hire 3000 new workers to deepen their tech expertise. So yeah, software engineers. Yeah. Exactly. the software engineers for things like this, presumably. Yeah. So is that framework right? Is the way that I'm thinking about that right?
0: Yeah, we don't need to convince them. The market, which is Tesla in this case, is convincing them. Tesla's worth more than any other OEM, and it's actually worth more than a bunch of them combined. And the Model 3, if my numbers are correct, I'm almost positive they are because I don't want to get this wrong. The Model 3 outsells the Mercedes-Benz C-Class, the BMW 3 Series, and the Audi A4 line combined. And that's just one car, the Model 3. And so you bet your bottom dollar, these OEMs, know that they are under significant pressure from Tesla. And they're fortunate that Tesla only plays in this entry luxury category and not in the volume game, which they really make a lot of volume on, where mm. they're making a lot of cars. So, but no, I think all these companies recognize that the car is moving to a software product and they have to get those skills up. Toyota has made similar announcements, but previously Volkswagen has this car dot software organization, which is going to be 10,000 engineers, software engineers. So these companies absolutely get it. We we don't need to convince them. To answer your question directly at the early point, I was like, I think if applied, depended on software companies like Waymo, Aurora, Neuro, these companies buying our software, and that was our only market, I think we'd be in a tough position. In the words of Mark Andreessen, selling software to software companies is a bad business. And I think fundamentally, the OEMs, whether they're construction or mining or defense or automotive or trucking, they're not software companies, they're technology companies, but they're vehicle manufacturers. They're fundamentally what their name says, original equipment manufacturer. That's what they are. And we're not, by the way, you know, we're not building the autonomy systems. We're building the tools to build the autonomy systems. And in Silicon Valley, the build buy thing is very common because all these companies are heavily funded. And there's honestly and frankly, it's a lot of it's just ego as well. You know, the CEOs who've raised like a billion dollars, it's economically better for them to use our software. And we do, we've hired from all of these companies and the simulation platforms are identical across all these companies. But the reason that some of them buy it is some of them are trying to build a business and the other ones are researchers who have a lot of money and are saying, well, everything is important and they don't quite understand the business aspect of it. But like I said at the beginning, I think if we started the company selling software to software companies, that would have been a bad business. And mm-hmm. so we very much from the onstart were like, hey, you know, we're ultimately gonna sell to other industries and that's a feature, that's not a bug
1: it's almost like you were destined for this company, (laughs) you know, like Michigan raised and Google maps, your co-founder also from Michigan. I mean- You're gonna hear
0: something crazier. You're gonna hear something crazier. My co-founder's parents and I live like blocks from each other. We didn't know each other in Michigan. I mean, you talk about a one in a billion, That's insane. It's, it's absolutely insane. And, you know, I feel super, super fortunate because I love the car business and I love the software business and I love Detroit and I love Munich and I love Tokyo. I lived in Japan. I lived in Germany. I love those places. And so
1: having a company that can build it. And even taking that like a step further, you started a messaging company yeah. that ended up being acquired by Google. And then you went into the Google Maps yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, team on Google. Like, what are the chances? It's almost like this was fate. So, okay, the next question that I have is, are car company your friends or your enemy? I can't figure it out. How the hell do you sell to these guys?
0: No, they're absolutely friends. By the way, the Bay Area AV companies are friends as well. I mean, we very much are a company that wants autonomy to succeed broadly. Whether they're using our tools or not is secondary.
1: But your ideal customer would be an OEM. It would be a GM, a Ford, a Chrysler. Our ideal customer is anybody that's
0: building a self-driving system. Sure. (laughs) And to be very clear, especially in the early days, all of our customers were Bay Area customers, and they continue to be. We've We've never had a customer leave us, which we're super proud of. And so the punchline and the point here that we're making is... Anybody who's building self-driving, we want to enable them and want to help them get to that goal faster. And that's it. So certainly not an enemy, but yeah, they're potential customers is this entire category.
1: So again, maybe this is a really unfair characterization, but I have managed teams in the Midwest. I have had reps in Michigan. I've had those reps (laughs) selling into the auto industry. And everyone says, good luck. And usually they are the bottom of the prioritization list because they're typically very slow to adopt technologies.
0: That would be generally be true if the thing that you're selling for is not fundamentally important to them. Self-driving is fundamentally important to them.
1: That's right. Is this such a big tailwind in their market? It is so critical to them that in fact... They are going to be early adopters. This is one of the priorities that they have set out from the top. So if you're your sales team and Kassar was interrogating your team on like, all right, do you have budget, authority, need, and timing? Timing is good. Authority is from the top down. Need is absolutely there. And the budget will be created as soon as there's a technology to consume that.
0: absolutely. I mean, you hear about uh, Silicon Valley companies raising 100 million here, 500 million there, a billion dollars there of self-driving. These OEMs are spending those types of numbers every year. They just don't make announcements about it. And so absolutely they exist. But in this conversation we're pretty focused on OEMs, but it's true for all these different industries. Any vehicle manufacturer is thinking about autonomy to some degree because it's going to impact them. And that's what's helped us. That's the tailwind. Absolutely right. I think in terms of selling to large companies versus, you know, let's say if you're selling to hospital versus selling to a big automaker in Sweden or something like that. I think the mechanics are actually similar. Our salespeople, and by the way, we're hiring salespeople across the board. We're hiring ISRs, we're hiring in the Bay Area, in Detroit, in Munich, in LA, in uh, Tokyo, in Seoul. So if you know anybody who's listening is interested in this general area, where Applied.co slash careers is my shout out for the company. But Absolutely. the people that we tend to hire are tend to have sold traditional Silicon Valley software. So we will hire folks that are have that Oracle experience or that very bread and butter sales experience. And so I don't think our sales motion is fundamentally different than the sales motion that you would have in traditional enterprise software, mainly because our software is just needed by the customer.
1: Okay. Fair enough. I have one more question, actually, before we go to the international piece. To your point earlier, you said, hey, Jubin, anyone who is interested in autonomous anything is our customer. But we could also refine that to who is our ideal customer profile. And since you sell horizontally to anyone that's interested in autonomous, do you focus on those that have the most pressing and urgent business cases that you could immediately solve a problem for? So, you know, Postmates right now is delivering autonomously their food. Uber, whoever wins, Uber, Lyft, or anybody else in the ride-sharing business, Prop 22 that's happening in California doesn't really matter anymore. The way that they classify drivers makes no difference. I think it's Prop 22. Maybe I butchered that. But the way that they classify drivers doesn't matter because they don't have drivers, right? So that's a huge, so there's early people. And then those are like enablers of their whole business. Is that the way that you start to coach the team or prioritize an ICP? Or is that a completely unfair way of even thinking about this?
0: Yeah, I think it's generally correct. I think you can see from the profile of the customer to who autonomy really is going to be a big deal. We do use cases, including delivery, as you've talked about, but other use cases that we haven't touched at all here, including aviation and some other systems. And so it really depends on, it's all the classic, I think medic is the term, you know, you're you're really looking sure. at like, who are decision makers? Do they have budgets allocated? How hard is it to get to them? What's their decision-making process? And I think in that sense, it is the entire market. I, I wouldn't say that we, we're not biasing towards like Detroit right. versus Silicon Valley or Munich No, I Tokyo. understand
1: that. But I think what I love about it, if I put my sales hat on, is it's very quantifiable. And there's really two key levers that you would look for. One, how much money are we saving you? Or two, how much money are we going to drive towards your top line? Period. That's it, right? And so couldn't you start to build a lead list of, okay, well, if we got rid of United's pilots, how much would that save them? You can really easily quantify that. Or alternatively, if we made every single Nissan self-driving What would that mean in terms of car sales or whatever?
0: I mean, you can see it just in Tesla right now. You can see how much it means by just their market cap and by the amount of cars that they sell as a young manufacturer. So yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes our business, I think,
1: really great. Right now, if I'm not mistaken, Tesla has an opt-in. You pay a couple extra grand for the autonomous piece. Do you think... It's always going to be that way, or do you think it's going to be table stakes to have autonomy? If so, when do you think for the mass consumer car?
0: Yeah, I think it'll be like that for a while, uh, many many years. If you look at the way, specifically talking about passenger vehicles that consumers buy, so not you know fleets or things like that, the way that auto companies made money ten years ago was nav systems. You would buy a Ford F one fifty and then you would pay three thousand dollars for a nav system, and that's gotten eaten away slowly by CarPlay and Android Auto. And so, OEMs are looking for that next package to add. Mm -hmm. And so, it's a natural upsell. That That makes sense. Makes a lot of sense to me. And they can do the math very quickly of like, how do I get a more advanced lane keep system? It doesn't even have to be to the level of Tesla Autopilot, but where a consumer will pay for it. Every OEM has some branded version of this already. Volvo has it because it's called Pilot Assist, uh, ProPilot from Nissan. Super Cruise from general motors which very recently consumer report says performs better than tesla autopilot i know which is almost blasphemy to say in silicon valley but each of these companies that's the way they're thinking about and again in consumer passenger vehicles that's how they're thinking about this monetization of autonomy
1: okay in your series b and series c memos you talk about going global it's a key business driver for you you had mentioned earlier you have six offices some of the ones that i saw detroit munich silicon valley tokyo Turns out great cars, and again, not just cars, but everything else is manufactured everywhere, right? Airlines in Seattle, as an example. So what are some of the challenges of growing internationally? And maybe I'll be very specific. In your business, do you view rules and regulations like Uber as the number one challenge? Or is it the unique Go-to-market motions as a larger challenge for you in doing business in those places, or are those kind of one in the same in your mind?
0: No, I, I, for us regulations are irrelevant. Where we, you know we we provide software tools, and there's so it ends up not being a question at all. Yeah, where it is different is you know how do you hire an ISR in Munich, and how are they different from somebody in Mountain View versus somebody in Seoul. And each of those people, they have a different understanding of what that means and how compensation is. In some of the international markets, a 50-50 comp structure on base and commission makes sense. And in some cultures, it doesn't make sense, where it's going to be really just a bonus, which is is based on performance. It's more like 80-20 or 70-30. So we've built the appropriate incentive structures for each of the offices, because I think you can't just take the Silicon Valley, you know, I worked at Salesforce or I worked at another enterprise company, Box, or something like this, or Hortonworks, or whoever, Cloudera, and now I'm gonna take that model and copy and paste it to Munich. It doesn't quite work that way. So there's some adjustments. And I think but that I wouldn't say is the biggest challenge. I think probably the biggest challenge in international offices, and this extends beyond sales and marketing, it's culture. You know, the Bay Area culture is there is one thing that you get in the Bay Area that you don't get anywhere else. And part of that's good engineers, but it's good engineers who really want to be aggressive. It's good salespeople who really want to be aggressive. It's good marketing people who really want to be aggressive. And I think that type of entrepreneurial, for the lack of better word, viewpoint. In the world, everybody wants to work at Google, except in the Bay Area, where people don't want to work at Google and they kind of ask you like, why are you still working at Google? What's the yep. misfortune that's befallen you, that you're, still, <laughs> you know, that you're still at Facebook or you're at one of these companies? And it's, I mean, listen, I love Google and I, I think it's a great company, but that sentiment kind of exists only in the Bay Area. If you go to Tucson, Arizona, people are not going to be like, why would you why would you work at Google? They're like, amazing, congratulations, sure. you work at Google. And so the point there being is the culture in the Bay Area is different. And we're trying to take that culture and implant it in our offices internationally and domestically
1: okay, but you can only be in one of six offices at any one in six times, right? Like at any given time, you can only be in one place. So any tricks, any things that you've seen be successful or do you have your key sets of early hires who live and breathe applied, go out there and actually run those offices and start those offices, anything that you can do. Yes, yeah, so we do
0: that. We do that. We also have values that we really live by and it all comes down to though, is fundamentally who we hire. We hire people who get it, and that's kind of the business. I think another big lesson that I've learned over my career as being a founder and being at Google and being at YC is recruitment is really important. And I think I didn't care about it enough before, as in like, I always thought it's important, but it's basically everything. If you recruit the wrong engineer, the wrong salesperson, the wrong designer, the wrong marketing person, it's really hard to deduce that they're not performing. It's not like people are just... Complete buffoons. Maybe they're mediocre. And at least in sales, you can see it through quota, but in a lot of other functions, you don't. How do you know somebody's a good marketer or a great marketer a mediocre marketer? So we focus a lot on making sure we bring in the right people and then they carry the culture. We absolutely have culture carriers in the company and we distribute them and rotate them out to offices. And so we think about it a lot and we talk about it on a daily basis, every single day.
1: Culture carrier. I like that. And I tell our portfolio all the time, we can screw up basically everything, but if we get recruiting, right, we will be just okay. Exactly. Cool, man. That's a good spot for us to wrap it. I ask the same couple questions at the end of each of these. The first is what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? I have heard you talk about the word determination. So feel free to use that. Yeah,
0: there's some old video on the...
1: It's good. It's actually really good. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's really
0: good. (laughs) Okay, so you just watch that. But I do think it is fundamentally determination is is a big part of it. I think there's also a durability that people have to huge oscillations, like the kind of the the fabric of, of how they respond to adversity. And I always like to hire people that have gone through a lot of adversity because that allows them to get through hard times easier. Because their base expectation is slow. And so they're not turned off by a customer saying no or a customer saying, this is not exactly right for what I need or whatever the feedback might be. But yeah, that's what it means to me determination and durability.
1: If someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they? I know you already mentioned that you're hiring all over the place for all different types of roles. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Well,
0: I'm not on social media and I also recommend other people not to be on social media. (laughs) I think it's terrible. So I would say, you know, this is when you're supposed to plug that. And I already get far too many emails. So my cop-out answer is come work at Applied and we'll spend a lot of time together. (laughs) Awesome.
1: (laughs) should they go to your career page? Should they hit you up on LinkedIn? What, what should they do? Like if you want to come work there?
0: Yeah, career page. We have a great recruiting team and and myself and Peter, my co-founder, we're completely involved in recruiting and looking at everybody. But yeah, it's the easiest way. We, we're hiring for more roles than I can list here in, in this uh, short time.
1: Awesome. We will also link to the careers page on the show notes. So Casser, thank you for your time, man. Yeah,
0: it was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at KleinerPerkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.